Romans 15. We're just going to look at two verses just to give us a little framework for what we're trying to do and a little encouragement along those lines before we um, get into the series. But um, before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are very, very thankful that we can be here. We thank you so much for your love for us, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your great and precious promises to us in Christ. We thank you for your word, which is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness, for ourselves and for those we minister to. We thank you for that. We do pray that you would encourage us and teach us and grow us and equip us through this study uh, to walk with you more closely and to minister to those in our own families, in our workplace, in our church, and beyond as you'd have us to. So we look forward to what you're going to do as we seek to grow in our own personal discipleship, as we seek to grow in our ministry to others. Father, please be with the children this morning as well. Please teach them. Please work in their hearts. Please meet the deepest needs of their hearts for you, as well as our own hearts for you. And prepare us for our time in worship. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Romans 15, verses 13 and 14 are part of Paul's wrapping up of his explanation of the gospel to the Romans, and he's beginning to give them some personal uh, encouragement as he concludes the letter. And he says in verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 14, And concerning you, my brethren... I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. The key phrase there is able to admonish one another. The word admonish is nutheteo, which is the Greek word from which they get the word nuthetic. And you may have heard of nuthetic counseling. It basically is a reference to biblical counseling, using the scriptures to counsel and counseling one another. Um, John MacArthur comments on this word, and he says it carries the idea of encouraging, warning, and advising. It is a comprehensive term for counseling. In this context, it refers to coming alongside other Christians for spiritual and moral counseling. Paul is not referring to a special gift of counseling, but of the duty and responsibility responsibility that every believer has for encouraging and strengthening other believers. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing, is that we're not necessarily trying to create um, formal counselors, those who feel like they're called to uh, counsel in a formal setting, although that can be part of what this training does for individuals. It's to equip the church as a whole to fulfill what God calls all of us to do, which is to encourage one another, exhort one another, uh, minister the scripture to one another, as it says in Romans fifteen fourteen, And that, inqu- that obviously requires, he says, being filled with all knowledge. It requires some knowledge, and it talks about uh, being full of goodness, which is basically the idea that not only are you filled with knowledge, but you're living it out in your own life. So there's the personal application as well as the ministry application of what Paul is talking about there. And that's what we want to encourage through this series 
together. And so we're going to use this series by the IBCD, Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, which is actually located down in Escondido, uh, or at least it was. I guess it's probably relocated now since Jim Neuheiser moved. But he's the one who's actually teaching the series. Uh, He's the director of IBCD. He directs a Christian counseling program at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. He teaches Christian counseling and practical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary as well. He also is an adjunct professor of biblical counseling at the Master's College. Um, He's a board member of a couple different uh, counseling organizations. For 25 years, he preached and pastored at Grace Bible Church in Escondido. And so he got his seminary training um, and his D-men at Westminster Seminary. And so he's a Reformed uh, pastor uh, who now spends his time primarily directing the IBCD uh, ministry. And he's had a lot of experience in counseling. And so he's somebody that I think we can learn from and glean some encouragement from as we go through this series. The plan each week is to use about half the time to watch the video and half the time to discuss what is talked about in the video. If you miss a session, you can actually download their app on your phone or you can listen to it online. And if you need more information about that, just let me know. So even if you miss one, you can catch up on your own. If you want a student handbook, you can order one of those. But we're also providing um, handouts that uh, you can use as well. Um, Dan, Mark, Jackson, and I will be facilitating it, uh, the discussion, that is. And uh, as I just mentioned, the purpose of the study is twofold. It's one, to help you personally, help us personally, to fight sin and pursue love. And it's to help us to help other people fight sin and pursue love. So it has a dual purpose. It has a personal application as well as a ministry application. And the course is divided up into three parts. One is a philosophy of biblical counseling. The second part is on methodology. Um, you know, how do people change? How do we pursue change? How do we encourage change? And then there will be specific issues that we'll talk about, like um, dealing with anger, depression, anxiety, uh, dealing with issues in marriage and parenting and all those kinds of things. So hopefully it'll be very encouraging, very helpful in, in various ways. I would encourage you to take notes in terms of just ideas that strike you um, you can actually download off the website the whole transcript as well so you don't have to write down everything he says uh, you could actually just print it out yourself but you may want to jot down things that strike you that stand out to you and write down questions that are generated by what is said and we'll talk about those questions okay well let's go ahead and uh, watch the video at this point we're going to watch half of the first session And then we'll spend some time talking about it. This is the first lecture or talk on in our care and discipleship training. And this is for people who may want to be certified in from IBCD and care and discipleship. It also counts towards NANC certification for those of you who are going in that direction. Maybe some of you just want to learn about biblical counseling. And this first talk is called, What is Biblical Counseling? And we're really going to be contrasting biblical counseling with other approaches people take to counseling in this first talk. 
Uh, as we go through this series, we'll go through a methodology of counseling and how to apply the scriptures to different situations as well. And you might say, well, why do we need biblical counseling? We've already got psychology. And psychology is something actually that's relatively new in terms of people thinking of it as a, a science to help people with their problems. Uh, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, typically, if someone had a problem, if they were feeling discouraged or depressed, or if there was a conflict in relationships, or they were struggling uh, with worry, with fear, or with temptation, if they were Christians, they would probably go to a pastor or to elders uh, to get help, to get wisdom, perhaps even to family members. And then uh, with the coming of Freud and psychoanalysis and psychology, there's been a huge shift in not just Western culture, but really the whole world in which a psychology has replaced theology as the basis by which people understand themselves. There's also sociology, in other words, the social sciences. And through this, people, you know, people go to psychologists, to licensed counselors, psychotherapies, uh, when they have problems. And, of course, something more in our day is even going to their general practice family doctor and wanting pills to help them with the very problems that in the past uh, people sought help from, well, spiritual help, and Christians would seek spiritual help from the Scriptures. Uh, as this has been happening, something that's been very disappointing in the last few generations is the church has, has failed really to carry on its work. Something we're going to emphasize in this course is that pastors and leaders in the church are to shepherd God's flock, care for people with their personal needs, that older women are to help younger women, uh, and that the, the very problems that we understand from the scriptures that God has given that the Bible addresses and that we as believers should be helping each other, especially leaders in the church, that many churches have kind of abdicated their uh, responsibilities and have either farmed people out to psychologists who may not be Christians at all, or even now in many seminaries, Bible colleges, psychology is taught almost uncritically as the methodology by which people should be helped. And yet, our perspective would be that in the same way that Darwinism has changed many of the sciences and replacing the biblical creation story with evolution and then many implications that have been untrue and harmful, uh, with the coming of Freud, the understanding of who man is and how to help man has uh, been a, a radical change, not for the good. Uh, Thomas Sass, who is a professor of psychiatry, I don't know if he was a believer or not, but... Uh, he writes how with the decline of religion and the growth of science in the 18th century, the cure of sinful souls, which had been an integral part of Christian religions, was recast as the cure of sick minds and became an integral part of medical science. And, and our understanding and our concern is that as in, in the name of psychology, in the name of what sounds very scientific, that, uh, that really the, the role of the church and the role of Christians helping other Christians has been taken over. And, and we're going to see there's a place for helping people who have uh, a genuine illness, such as schizophrenia, where their brain is deteriorating. But so many of the cases of, of people having problems, and the cases for which people today may be going to doctors for medicine or 
getting counseling that may not be at all from a biblical perspective. So many of these are addressed by the scriptures. And of course, we want to train you to address those. Um, But as I said, something that is very sad is really up until about, well, the late 1960s, uh, the churches in general were almost uncritically accepting psychology as being the new way to help people. And they did not recognize the contradictions between much of what psychology says and what the Bible teaches about how to help people with their problems. And the biblical counseling movement of which we are a part really began to emerge late 1960s, early 1970s with uh, Jay Adams, who ultimately published his landmark book, Competent to Counsel. And in the biblical counseling movement, this is kind of like a reformation. It's like when Luther nailed the 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, declaring that the church at that time was going in a wrong and unbiblical way and was making a challenge. And in this way, Jay Adams also in this book uh, declared his belief that what the Bible teaches about man and how to help people is contrary to what was going on in secular psychology and even much of what's called, you know, many Christians who are practicing psychology. And through that, there emerged a movement in which there's been an effort to study the Bible, to understand the scriptures, to help people with their problems, uh, developing, as we'll see in this course, a methodology that's rooted in scripture to address specific problems that, uh, as the Bible addresses them, and to be wary of, of some of the solutions that those who don't have a biblical perspective have proposed. And in the last, now it's been a generation, it's been over 40 years, as I'm, I'm making this uh, video, it's been over 40 years that this movement has been going on, and it's been something very encouraging. Initially, there was a training center, CCEF, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, since there, there have been many other uh, colleges, universities, uh, such as Master's College, Southern Seminary, and, and more uh, who have been returning to the scriptures as the way to help people with their spiritual problems. Uh, many more churches are, are getting involved. And really the passion of, of IBCD is to train people to use the Bible to help one another with their spiritual problems uh, in the local church. And uh, I have been involved in Christian counseling now for over 20 years. Actually, I was convinced of this uh, kind of in the early stages, even of the biblical counseling movement in the late 70s, early 80s, but have been working with uh, what is now the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, which began as CCEF West and got a new name in the 90s. But it's been my privilege both to counsel and to train people uh, using the scriptures and my testimony is it has been a great encouragement. Most, most preachers, and that's my main job, most preachers take Mondays off. And for the last 20 or so years, I've been spending my Mondays counseling for several hours. And, and the reason I, I choose to do this is I see God doing great things. And through the course, I'll talk about many specific cases. Obviously, changing names were appropriate. And, but we've seen God work in great ways. And, and even more importantly that we've seen as, as churches engage with this and as training takes place, that we see entire churches more or less converted to biblical counseling, getting people trained, and helping one another with the scriptures, doing biblical peacemaking in the scriptures, having women helping women within the church using the Bible. And that's something for which we have a great passion and about which we're very excited. And 
And, and our belief is that God has given us sufficient resources in His Word, by His Spirit, and in the church to help people with their spiritual problems. Now, for the rest of this lecture, I'm going to talk some about what's wrong with competing theories. And it's not that I hate all psychologists, and it's not even that psychology has nothing whatsoever true to say in the sense that they can be uh, well-informed observers of human behavior. But psychology in its essence, and especially in its origins and much of its, its present practice, is really a competing religious theory with that of the scriptures. Uh, and you know, it, it's called a, a science, but it's different from other sciences. And, and it's also a worldview. Uh, just using an example that when I, uh, I injured my shoulder some months ago, and they did an MRI, and they could see that uh, tendons were torn completely. And medical science really gave me three options. I could have limited motion like this for the rest of my life. I could have open surgery, which was the old way of doing it, which would require a very long recovery. Or they could do arthroscopic surgery, where they kind of poke five holes in and they tie everything up. And there's research that shows, you know, after six months, I can probably swing a tennis racket again. Um, on the other hand, uh, when, when it comes to psychology, there are over 250 different competing theories of human behavior. There are many, many different approaches. And you know, there are some in psychology who say, well, the pastor can deal with spiritual issues. Well, you know, if there's a mental health issue, you should turn that over to the professionals who are licensed therapists and trained in psychology. But the issue is that there's an overlap of, of the issues that we're addressing. There, there are issues if you go to a licensed therapist to, with you have a marriage problem or uh, a conflict. Uh, these are issues the Bible addresses, and it has specific answers. And uh, oftentimes the perspective of the psychologist is either non-directive or you just kind of make up your own mind and do what seems right to you and the scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end is judgment, it's death. Uh, you know, the very word psychology uh, it comes, you know, suke is the soul. The psychology is the study of the soul. It's the study of the inner person of man. Uh, both the Bible and psychology is telling people how to live. Uh, Saz writes that psychotherapeutic interventions are not medical, but moral in character and are therefore not literal, but metaphorical treatments. And so there, there are ethical, moral issues being addressed. Uh, Saz writes how psychology is the religion of the formerly irreligious, with its language, which is not Latin, but medical jargon, with its codes of conduct, which are not ethical, but legalistic, with its theology, which is not Christian, but positivism. Uh, Many of the early leaders uh, that, who were the founders of, of psychology were very open in their rejection of biblical Christianity. Uh, Freud is said to have opened his practice on Easter Sunday. Uh, Skinner was named the humanist of the year. And humanist of the year is not a person who loves humanity, but it's a person who is a secular humanist excluding God from his worldview. And there are many psychological approaches and therapies which go against uh, the religious belief and even sometimes that will try to undermine the religious belief of a client. 
psychology has become a huge influence on our culture. It, it has an influence in education, and teachers are trained in psychology. They have counselors trained in psychology in schools. It's an influence in the judicial system, and people will be evaluated by psychologists, and that will determine the kind of sentence they get or whether they're guilty or not guilty by reason of mental incompetence. Um, it, it's very powerful. And David Pallison writes that psychology to our society is as Islam is in Morocco. It's, it's, the part, of, it's part of the worldview. But it's, it's not scientific in the same way that medical sciences or uh, chemistry, biology, physics... Uh, they can be very helpful. Again, I'll say something positive. That I think in terms of observation and description, uh, psychology and, and the research that's done can be interesting and helpful. They can observe the stages of grief people typically go through. Uh, they can describe behaviors of someone that they give a diagnosis of bipolar or depressed to, and they can list out these things. And Biblical counselors, most of us own copies of the DSM, Diagnostic Statistics Manual, where they describe these problems. And, and we see people who fit those descriptions. And, but the difference is not in the description, it'll be in the prescription. That they don't have the answers for those problems, and it's because they, they don't understand who man is and, and what man needs. And as I mentioned before, there are so many different and even contradictory psychological approaches. Uh, J. Adams writes, if there were over 250 different viewpoints on how to do air traffic control, you'd never get in an airplane. But, you know, Freud and Jung are psychoanalytic, uh, Skinner and Watson behavioral, Rogers humanistic, there's transpersonal, where you kind of uh, make your own reality, uh, somewhat related to Eastern mysticism, there's cognitive, where you're kind of man's a computer that needs to be programmed, uh, Richard Gans, in his book uh, Psychobabble, describes a lady named Desperate Deborah. And she's got all these problems, and her life is a mess. But the question is, who does she call? And he wrote the book so long ago, he talks about going to the yellow pages. I could say, now you go on the Internet, and you Google uh, psychologists or counselors in, in your area, in San Diego. Well, which one? You, you get 300 different people who pop up, and they all do it differently because there is no one way of doing it. And, and, and again, it, it really is based upon the beliefs and the perspectives. Uh, sometimes they, they will overanalyze. Gans, quoting Saz, saying, we're told if a patient is early for his appointment, he is anxious. If he's late, he's hostile. If he's on time, he's compulsive. And he says, we laugh because it's supposed to be a joke, but actually, some take these things very seriously. And secular humanistic psychology... Um, has presuppositions that are unbiblical, which keeps them, even if, again, they've identified the problems, and, and that can be useful research. They spend millions of dollars in universities, and uh, they identify problems people have, but they are not able to provide solutions because their worldview is skewed. And from our standpoint, we can evaluate their worldview based on the Bible. Fundamentally, they have a faulty view of man. You think about it. If your job is to help people and you don't understand anything about people, you're in trouble. Uh, I, for example, would not be the person you would want to repair your vehicle because all I know about vehicles is where you put the key and where you put the gas. I'm ignorant about vehicles. Well, 
with respect, psychologists, for all of their research and study and learning, those who have been trained in our universities and the perspective from which they come, don't know who man is. The perspective of secular psychology is that man is only an advanced animal. The Bible says that God, in Genesis 1, that man has been made in the image of God. Even you take famous psychological experiments like Skinner, who would manipulate animals and animal behavior uh, and say, well, if you can do that with animals, then you can do it with people. Well, people are, are spiritual beings made in the image of God. They're not just like animals. Uh, furthermore, in scientific materialism, the idea that there's a general denial that we have a soul. You know, man is seen merely as a body. Your thoughts, your feelings are just things going on, electrons bouncing around in your brain. Uh, your consciousness is, is just a physical function of your body. Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Bible teaches that man is not just a body, but man also has a real soul, suke, ironically. And that even when the body dies, that we will continue in our existence and then one day the body and the soul be reunited and, and that the soul again it's not something really physical the soul there, there, are, there are moral issues here that the soul is choosing right and wrong and the soul has a certain kind of nature which we're going to get to in just a moment also because we've been created by God we're accountable to God uh, psychology will often say you know, what are your goals what do you want us to do for you what do you want your life to be like well a biblical counselor gave an entirely different perspective. Is what you want may be exactly the wrong thing according to Scripture. Uh, we are not relativists because we have been made by God. We are accountable to God. Furthermore, our life has meaning. The meaning isn't just what we do for 70 years on this earth, but it has everlasting, eternal implications. And then another error of typical secular psychology is to say that, well, man is basically good or You'll hear the expression, this is often taught uh, to people who want to train children, we're, we're blank slates. Uh, Abraham Maslow, a famous psychologist, said, as far as I know, we don't have any intrinsic instincts for evil. Now, you read that statement by itself, and you think, well, he must not have had children. <laughs> uh, he must, I don't know, but of course, what he would say is that the bad that comes in people is because they're damaged by their experience and by other people. Um, he, would, he even says that since this inner nature is good or neutral rather than bad, it is best to bring it out and encourage it rather than to suppress it. So you think about this in terms of child training. Just draw out of that child whatever's in his nature, and that's good. The task of psychiatry or psychology is to bring out that innate goodness. Well, then how do they explain when someone does something bad or wrong, when you have someone who shoots a bunch of children in a school or hurts a child? Well, it was some outside influence that drew bad things on the blank slate. And you know, the Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that mankind has fallen, and Adam we all die. And now the flesh, that those who are in the flesh, Romans 8, are unable to please God. They're unable to do God's law. David says in Psalm 51 that he was conceived in sin, meaning he was conceived a sinner, even in the womb before his birth. And, you know, if you're trying to help people, there's a huge difference between saying whatever comes out of this person naturally is either good or neutral, 
or from conception and birth, this child has a bent, this now adult, a bent towards evil, a bent towards wrong. That the scripture says that we have even in our hearts a knowledge of, of the law of God and what's right and wrong, but our nature is to go against that because of our, our fallenness and because we're children of Adam. And and so, you know, as people come with problems and there, there's conflict or there's unhappiness in marriage and, and even issues of, of worry and fear or depression and anger, uh, there's sin involved. And, and sin needs to be addressed. And, and so often psychology will treat sometimes the symptoms. Okay, well, you feel badly. How can we help you to feel better? But the scripture says that it's, what's wrong with us is, is within our soul. The Bible uses the word heart, not of the pump that sends the blood around your body, but of your soul, of your inner self. And, and the Bible says it's our soul which is diseased. And it's the disease of sin. And of course, it's the gospel that is the cure. Likewise, uh, secular psychology looks upon man as being autonomous. That man can solve his own problems. And of course, implicitly without God's help. You, know, you look within yourself. A non-directive counseling, client-centered therapy, you're not really allowed to tell your client what to do. You try to lead him to what he wants to do. Help him to clear his thinking, if you will. Uh, Well, the Bible is directive. Uh, The Bible teaches what there's right and there's wrong. Uh, A a real quote from a psychologist is, self-centeredness is the secret to better mental health. Well, that is completely contrary to Scripture. Uh, Scripture says our our problem is we're self-centered sinners, and it's when you repent of that and you learn to love God and love others, that's what makes your soul and puts your soul in the right place, and that's only possible through the Gospel. Uh, Fromm, another psychologist, says, the Garden of Eden is a story allegorizing man's move to freedom. Exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. It's our movement away from the freedom of living in the will of God to rebellion and misery and death. Uh, Another quote, the task of psychology is to help the individual get in touch with his real self in order to repair the damage that culture has done. Um, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing that to make that change which really matters, to make that change which is pleasing to God out of our sinful patterns and behaviors. It's not, Fromm says, the achievement of well-being is possible under one condition if we put man back in the saddle. Well, the scripture says the opposite. It says it's with a complete dependence upon God under his lordship that the disease of our sin can be cured. Along with this, psychology not only misunderstands who man is as a responsible being in the image of God who has fallen, who needs redemption, uh, psychology also excuses sin and denies personal responsibility. And, and here's the quote I mentioned from Maslow, the good impulses within people are easily warped Right there, it was hard to make a good break in this, but um, we're going to get into the uh, personal responsibility discussion next time. Um, But there's a lot in just the first part of what he has said that's interesting. Um, Any initial comments on what he said? 
Anything like that you'd like to comment on as you think about it? Tim? Okay. All right. Good deal. Yeah, I definitely think he does a good job of highlighting and contrasting. That's basically what he's doing. He's answering the question, what is biblical counseling? And he's, first of all, answering it by saying it's in contrast to a psychological approach, a secular psychological approach. Okay? Any other comments on what he had to say or questions about what he had to say? And Jonathan is on the ready to run that mic to you for the sake of those who might be listening and get you on the uh, recording. Any other comments or questions? Jackson? I always, I always appreciate the um, distinction between description and prescription um, in terms of describing a behavior and then prescribing how to change that behavior and what should be done. Um, another thing I think is, is interesting is if you read um, any research paper, there's a section where they describe the method of obtaining the description of what they're talking about, and then there's conclusions that are drawn from what they observe, and that conclusion, even if it's not prescriptive, is still uh, a synthesis or analysis of the description, and so I think that's interesting and should be kept in mind as well. Okay, all right. Yeah, I, I appreciate the way he acknowledges what there is positive about what even unbelievers can discover about people and about certain um, issues that we might have. I think that's very helpful because it doesn't say everything's bad about psychology, there's nothing good in it, which would be a... It's, there's usually something good in any perspective in light of the fact that um, we're all made in the image of God and there's common grace. And so you should always look for what is true or what is good and what this person is saying, even if they're not a believer. And yet, he makes the important distinction, as uh, Jackson highlighted, between description and prescription. It's one thing to say that it's very easy to see that people who are depressed have these characteristics, or people who are bipolar have these characteristics, and even unbelievers can see those characteristics and describe those experiences. The question is, how do you deal with it? And there's a great difference between what's secular psychology would say about how you deal with it and what the Bible would say. Dan? And the reason for that is because of the underlying presuppositions that people start with. And I, he mentioned this. I just want to highlight it again, emphasize that you, you just can't overemphasize the importance of fundamental presuppositions um, because, I mean, so many th- drivers here, one is that we can all have the same data on the table looking at it, but based on our presuppositions, we can come up with very different conclusions. Um, and the other thing is, from a science standpoint, a lot of information is gathered through studies. Well, studies themselves are based on certain presuppositions. What are you looking for? So we can't just even say, I mean, even if we feel like um, modern secular psychology is truly a science, even that's not enough because um, so is the medical profession. Um, so are the no, the natural sciences, the physical sciences, things that drive engineering, and so and, and those things are based on all kinds of presuppositions. So, what's your worldview and what's driving how you come to conclusions? Very true. Just with evolution, um, whether you're a believing scientist or an unbelieving scientist in terms of Christianity, I mean, you're looking at the same 
data, you know, you're looking at the same uh, different uh, layers of rock and everything else. Um, the question is, how do you interpret that? And that's, as Dan said, it's going to be based on your presuppositions, and that makes a huge difference. Melody and then Linda. Yeah, I was just thinking about, um, well, I listened to a conservative Christian podcast a lot that I really like, and she was just saying the other day, um, pointing out the reality that he pointed out as well, that um, as far as she knows, like Christianity is the only religion, worldview, belief system that um, fundamentally believes that people are inherently evil and like no other like it just it it's been standing out to me a lot these last couple weeks that no other belief system has that as a core that like that sets christianity apart from literally everything every other world religion as far as we know and um that to me just speaks to you know yeah the heart of man what he's talking about that we really really want to believe that people are good and people are intrinsically good because apart from the truth found in scripture if you're not following the bible there's literally nothing else in the world that will preach to you that you are intrinsically evil so i think that's just speaks volumes as to what where we go without scripture is always back to like well well i'm essentially a good person and then we make our decisions from there so Mm -hmm. it's very good and if you think about it um if you discard that fundamental belief that people are basically good then it blows up every other religion because there's no hope. Because you can't be good enough to earn your way to heaven, whatever that heaven is, if you're not fundamentally good. If you're fundamentally evil, then you're hopeless. That's where the gospel comes in. That's where you need a savior. But if you're your own savior, or if this religion is your savior by works, then you have to start there. Otherwise, it removes the hope of you being able to achieve what you're trying to achieve. That's a good point. Well, I love the church, and I'm just, I know we've studied history in our nation of what happened over the last 150 years. Could you just review for us what's happened to the church that we would be at this place at this time? You know, that's a great question. I'm not sure I could do a great job of that, but I think what he's referring to is the fact that obviously around the time of Darwin, you know, um, and uh, the um, the time where science became so prominent and people began to think that, hey, we're beginning to figure things out. Um, and people began to uh, believe that um, there were answers to questions that didn't simply come from the Bible or didn't come from... Um, what they'd been taught in church, so to speak. They began to believe that, you know, we can get answers simply through observing what's around us. We don't have to rely on the church. We don't have to rely on the Bible. We don't even have to have a God because we can explain why everything exists apart from God. It just kind of happened. And so... Um, whether it was the 18th century and into the 19th century, people began to think differently about how they could answer the primary questions of life. Where did where, where did we come from? Well, for thousands of years, it was God. God created everything. But then they began to think because of Darwin and others that, well, maybe God isn't necessary to having, you know, the earth and having man, and, and maybe we just kind of happened. And... 
So it began, people began to think that there were answers outside of the Bible, answers outside of the church, answers outside of what people had thought for so long. And that started it. And then you had people who began to rise up like Freud, who had a radically different perspective on human nature and what was driving us and how to explain it and how to address it and, and that kind of thing. And so it's um, it's amazing how, um, in a sense, the God of this world has used a lot of different things to, a lot of different worldly philosophies, a lot of different worldly perspectives, a lot of even scientific achievements to undermine um, the the Judeo-Christian perspective and worldview, and um, so it's it's a fascinating thing when you really think about how things have radically changed, and it's resulted in where we are today. You know, where we can basically define our own gender, we can define, you know, who we are and what we are. It's no longer you know, someone like God outside of us that tells us who we are and what we are. We've become totally autonomous, like he said. The answer is in me, and I can define reality. I can define right and wrong. I can define who and what I am. So it's really fascinating. Any other comments or questions? Jackson? Something that uh, he said that stood out to me was you know, the 250 different psychologies out there, um, which a counter to that that I, I can see people saying is, well, there's so many Christianities. How, how do you know which one, right? And so really um, good hermeneutics, exegesis, theology is important because when we say anything that we say, this is what Scripture says, we need to be able to make sure that that is what Scripture says it is. Very good. That's a very helpful point because a lot of people might say, well, you know, you've got so many denominations and everything else. Um, but basically he's appealing not to the idea that there's one church, you know, the Roman Catholic Church and whatever the church says is the truth. It's not that kind of argument at all. It's that we have one Bible. And if we faithfully understand and apply this Bible, then we'll have one approach. Now, we are... Um, imperfect, and so there are differences of opinion on certain things that are said in Scripture. But there is also a lot of agreement as well. And that's what he's arguing for, is basically the use of the Bible, not the argument of Christian tradition or a Christian denomination or anything like that. Okay? Anything else that stood out to you? Tim? Thank you, Jonathan. Okay, I'm I'm kind of trying to formulate my thoughts so forgive me if I ramble a little bit <laughs> so what what's always struck me in my memories of whenever I've had like a conversation with someone you know who would argue for very left-leaning topics or who would be very very resistant to the notion of God or Christ it all it always came down to that um, wanting to believe that we're inherently good, that we're born inherently good, which you could see the resistance in, in all the people I would talk to about that, and, and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get through to them, but now it's kind of making sense because they 
would cling onto that. They couldn't let go of that notion. So globalism roots from that. <laughs> like all of it tends to root from that because it absolves them of responsibility or having to ask the question, maybe it really, maybe I'm really not born perfect and good and good. Maybe I really do need somebody, a high, you know, not just a higher power, but somebody that can relate to me that has been one of me <laughs> that I don't know. I just, uh, the more you think about it, the more you realize that is such a massively poignant root of all these things that are happening constantly around us. So very true. Look, if you look, if you will, at Romans three, and I, he obviously talked about the biblical perspective on this, but it is very, very important because, as you highlighted, Tim and Melody did too. Um, it's so very common to want to believe that we're all fundamentally good. But in Romans 3, uh, verse 9, it says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, meaning under the power of sin, under the domination of sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And so the Bible is very, very clear that we're not fundamentally good. And if you don't believe in God or you don't believe that there's a Savior, then that's a very hopeless position. And that's a very um, depressing position. And that, that's, a, that's the kind of thing that could lead people to take their own lives and, 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 or maybe take other people's lives if they really believe, you know what, um, life is meaningless, it's hopeless, and uh, there's no good in me and there's no good in you. And, and so what does it matter what we do? And so, um, so without a Savior and without a God, there's no hope if you really come to see your own sin and your, the evil in your own heart and you realize you're not as good as everybody says you're supposed to be. And, and society becomes something that um, you don't really have any hope of it ever getting better. And I would say that's right. If there is no God and there is no Savior and there is no um, plan for God to renew this heaven and, and this earth, then yeah, we, we don't have any hope. And so um, that's why it's so strong is because you have to, uh, people have to, in some sense, uh, find a way to handle life without God. And so they have to argue that, you know, we can we can do this. I can do this. Everything's going to be okay because I'm fundamentally good. We're fundamentally good. We'll get past all this. We'll be okay. And the Bible keeps saying, you're not okay, but there is a Savior. And you can be saved from your not okayness. Uh, but you have to acknowledge that first. And that's why psychology and just the hu- humanistic worldly perspective is a hindrance to the gospel because it says you don't need anything beyond yourself. You have the resources within you. And the Bible keeps saying, no, you don't have the resources, but God is ready and willing to meet you and help you. And that's that's huge. Anyone or anything else? Any other comments? 
Andy? Uh, even though you agree that uh, uh, you should go to a pastoral, uh, to, uh, through pastoral counseling, uh, but you still have, still have to be careful about two, two uh, angles. First, uh, you have to ask yourself, uh, the pastor that you're going to, what kind of theology he or she espouses. Uh, so, you know, because we, we were well aware that in churches nowadays, there are certain churches that uh, uh, push forward the agenda and do not hesitate in using the word celebrate, uh, uh, celebrate um, diversity and, uh, you know, in terms of human behavior and all of that. So, so that, that's one aspect. And the other one is um, some of the uh, churches to cover their behind, they would they would go through, uh, you know, use the pastoral counseling that they have been trained with, but uh, to cover the behind, they have to kind of mingle it somehow with the uh, secular psychology. And, uh, um, you know, because, you know, there's the stigma that uh, if you are too religious, then you are too fa- fanatic, uh, biased on one side, and then your counseling, if, if, if it doesn't produce result or... Um, or, you know, produce like a tragic end, then they turn around and say, you see, you, you go to a pastoral counseling, and then all it's about is about God. So uh, to cover the behind, they have to kind of, uh, uh, I'm thinking more like an organization like, uh, you know, and Glinda brought up is Refuge, all right? Refuge is, you know, deep down, everybody is against the injustice of human trafficking. So we are all, deep down, we want to support that. But what kind of uh, uh, rehabilitation and that kind of counseling do they provide in there? You have to pay also close attention to. So I know that uh, it started out with being a be- many churches behind it. Uh, yes, true. Uh, but still, you have to pay close attention and because, you know, they, they will have some pastors come in and counsel. But uh, do they also bring in experts, so to speak, uh, that... Um, uh, that mingles some secular uh, uh, counseling in there also, yeah. And the and the thing is, you know, you 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 come in and you the first the first key that you should pay attention to is, do they call those people that they try to help client or patient? See, and uh, if they are allowed to call them patient, then they're definitely secular. Uh, but the but uh, the uh, they they only call them client, then uh, then then you know. That's, that's the reverse of the world. The world is you, if you're allowed to call the other person patient, then you have a higher, a higher uh, view of what you practice uh, because only licensed and doctors are, are allowed to call patient. Uh, but uh, if you are not a licensed uh, uh, doctor in psychology, then you cannot use that term. You have to call them client, you see. But if you go into like a rehab first facilities that proclaim to uh, to provide uh, counseling based on God, then you know one of the fast and easy way to distinguish is to hear how they call to people they are trying to help, and that's a, a quick and dirty summary. Okay, well your point is well taken. Obviously, uh, when I was in seminary, I went one year to New Orleans. Uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. I did most of my time in Texas at Southwestern. But I spent one year in New Orleans, and I had a, a biblical, I forget what they call it, but it was supposed to be a biblical counseling class, but it was basically uh, secular psychology um, baptized with 
religious terminology, and so it was basically uh, psychology being taught in the seminary. And so he made reference to that at one point, and that's very common. Um, there are other there are seminaries that are uh, not doing that anymore, like Southern Seminary and Masters and others. But there are a lot of seminaries that are still teaching um, secular psychology um, in their schools and encouraging pastors to use secular psychology in uh, trying to help people. And he's arguing that if you really understand the origins and the presuppositions and even um, the outright um, teaching, fundamental teachings of secular psychology, you can see that it's totally contrary to what the Bible actually says. Well, to wrap up for today, um, theology and psychology are similar in that um, they're dealing with the same fundamental issues of meaning and value, and yet they approach them in very, very different ways. Um, He talked about the fact that things have changed over the last 100 or 150 years. Uh, We've moved away from theology and Christian ethics to more secular perspectives and secular approaches. And his point is that it's infiltrated the church in all kinds of ways, um, whether through pastors uh, teaching um, psychological approaches and principles or, or whether Christians going to secular psychologists for help and not understanding that they're being given a different worldview than what is found in the Bible. Um, he asked the question, what is one major problem with assuming that psychology is a science? Uh, in the same way that medicine is, um, he mentions the 250 different approaches. It's, it's, the problem is there isn't even a large agreement on how to approach things from a secular perspective because there's no uh, common view of man and common understanding of what's going on. Um, Some of the unbiblical presuppositions, he got into the first one. We're going to get into the others next week. He began talking about the faulty view of man and how um, man is basically good, man is autonomous, we don't need God to solve our problems, and the reality is we desperately need God to do that. Um, So kind of wrapping up here, getting back to Romans 15, um, there's a sense in which what's being argued here is that the local church has a sufficiency to deal with people's problems. Now, you see in Romans 15 where Paul basically argues that that they can counsel, that they, they can't. There's a sufficiency in this church in Rome because he says, uh, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another, uh, that you are competent to counsel. That's where the title of J. Adams' book comes from. And so there's a sense in which what's being argued there, at least for the church at Rome and for all churches in terms of their goal and their growth, is that every church ought to be able and sufficient to counsel one another and to help people with their problems, that you should not have to send people out to unbelievers or secular counselors and that sort of thing. But the question is, what on what basis can the local church think that it's sufficient to counsel? That is connected to believing that the Bible is sufficient. 
And uh, if we had time, and as we go through this next week, I'll probably highlight 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, where it says that God has given us in his word all that we need in order to uh, do what he's called us to do. And therefore, the reason why we can be sufficient as the body of Christ to deal with problems is the Bible is sufficient. Now, why is the Bible sufficient? Because the Bible is the result of the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has given us the Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures in order to minister to people and to set them free through the truth. So the sufficiency of the church is very closely tied to the sufficiency of Scripture, which is very closely tied to the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit to change people's lives. And so that's the basis for confidence that we can actually be used by God as individuals, as a church, to see radical change in people's lives. It's not because we're something special or something unusual. Um, We have equipping that others don't have as a church or whatever. It's because of the scriptures and because of the Holy Spirit who is the one who sets people free through the truth of the scriptures as it's ministered through believers. And that's why we're going through this course is to help us to grow in our knowledge and in our goodness as it's described in Romans 15 so that we also can grow in our ability to admonish one another, encourage one another, counsel one another uh, for the glory of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would help us to have a, a confidence in what you can do through your people. That's tied to the confidence that we should have in your word. And that's most importantly tied to the confidence that we have in you. Confidence in the Holy Spirit who works through the word of God and works through the people of God to set people free and to help people in light of what their needs are. And so I pray that you would um, encourage us in that regard and and that you would um, help us to grow and being able to do that in this body more and more. Thank you for this time, and please prepare us for our time in worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.